This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time and to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn more. I was at the Christian Filmmakers Guild and uh, Festival uh, this last uh, week, and it was a full week, and I had some sizable uh, meetings and a lot of sizable uh, conversations that need processing, right? I need to process this. I have a lot of things that were asked of me, like, Eric, could you do this for me? And I'm like, I would love to. And now, then I go right into another meeting. <laughs> and so I haven't even been able to chew on what that would mean, how I could do that, how I could serve this person. So that's what I'm arriving back with is first of all, physical fatigue and mental, uh, the mental need to sort of solve a few riddles in my life. And so I got up early this morning, spent most of the morning praying. And uh, I do have a message. I know out of all of that, you'd think, what, what is he going to spit out after, after all this? I do have a message and it's, it, it's, it's simple, but it, it touches on something that is right in the stride of where we are at in American history, which is actually the history of all these other nations that are going to make up our history. Our, our history is actually made up by the decisions of other nations in a lot of ways. You have uh, the Edict of 1618, and King James is going to kick out of England all Puritans and all separatists, which we know is like the pilgrims, for instance, or the separatists. And they are not allowed because they are not uh, coming into order of the Anglican uh, church in, uh, in England. They are not submissive in the way that they should be. They are creating a hazard and a havoc. They are out. Well, that one decision of King James is going to be the strengthening of our nation because up to that point, the representation from England was not so hot. I'm going to say it that way. Jamestown, if you ever studied Jamestown, what you want to do is give a you know, corporate boo. It is a nightmarish situation. Under the banner of bringing Christ to this nation, the Jamestown settlement is going to do anything but. And a whole bunch of gentlemen come together and none of them want to get dirt beneath their fingernails. And, but the only way to survive in this land is to work. You have to work the ground. It's a, an incredible picture of what happens when Christianity goes awry and, so, and someone says, I don't believe I need to do anything as a Christian. I'm a gentleman Christian. I'm, you know, hey, I believe uh, I, I'm fine in the kingdom of heaven, aren't I? I mean, it's very interesting, but it's disaster. And it's called the starving season. And the percentage as is going to take place as the years progress from 1607 to 1620, over the, that 13 year period, the average rate of the people that arrive at Jamestown surviving the first year is 50%. That's survival rate. Not still have a smile on their face rate. That's survival rate. This is a destitute situation. And so last week we talked about choosing difficulty of the issue of the, the pilgrims. At that point they were the Leidenites. They were living in Leiden, Holland. They'd already uh, been removed from England. They had suffered tremendous religious persecution in England. And now they're in Holland, which they weren't suffering persecution there, but they had no job opportunities. If they, Holland would let them in, but they could only do menial tasks. So these are very highly educated people without the ability to utilize their education. And so they're working 15-hour days just to survive. 
and they are aging quickly. It's actually one of the things that history is saying is they were aging quickly because the women, the men and the, the women, both the parents were working all day long every day. The children to survive had to work whatever they could and the attraction of the world to the children was growing larger with every day. If that's your lot in life is working 15 hour days and your parents are working 15 hour days and this world over here that rejects this whole uh, religious thing is able to just live normal, the attraction, the allurement was great and the pilgrims recognized they need to get out of this country. They need to go somewhere, so where? They had two options. This is what I went through last week. Guyana in South America was one of the key options. And the other one was to join the Virginia Charter up in Jamestown. And for many of us, we could, if you studied what South America offered, listen to this, uh, Sir Walter Raleigh is going to say that it's a perpetual spring there. And uh, th I mean, basically a fruit like falls off into your hand. Remember who, who is reading that? That's the pilgrims. And they'd been killing themselves just to get that fruit. And now they could go to a place where the fruit would literally fall off the vine into their hand and into their mouth, almost like make their mouth chew it and swallow it. And they, they don't need to work. This is a great situation. And the gold mines are everywhere in South America. This is the legend, right? And so there is an attraction, even amongst the pilgrims. However, they recognize, because of what they've gone through, that oftentimes when things are appealing to the natural man, it isn't necessarily what God wants for them. So they have two options, and they are going to pray and believe it or not, this group of people is going to choose the harder road. They're going to choose to join the Virginia Charter. And if you know what that means, that means 50% of them are likely to die in the first year, as opposed to sitting in the tropical regions of Guyana and have fruit land in your mouth when it falls off the tree. Who would choose to do that? And yet that choice of going the harder way is going to define the course of our nation. In character, in spiritual zeal, and in governmental form. That decision. And so what we're going to see is I'm going to take the next step forward in that, but it is this territory that is hard to describe. It is this, I'm calling this surviving the second cut. And that will make sense as I unfurl this, but many of us sign up. We step forward for this thing called Christianity and we're ready. And we, we count the cost and we recognize that this is going to be difficult. And we are willing to sacrifice for it. And yet there's another layer of testing that comes in. And it's that second cut that oftentimes surprises us. Because we thought when we first gave ourselves radically to Jesus and we said goodbye to our life that we previously knew, that we had already made the decision. But there is a second layer that is going to come in that is going to separate wheat from chaff. And that is a dimension of the Christian life that I think we are needing right now in our history to be prepared for. Because many of us right now in this strange COVID-19 season are making solid decisions for Jesus. And we're like, I don't wanna go soft when the rest of the church is. I'm not gonna placate this culture. I'm gonna serve Jesus. And if I have to choose between Jesus and cultural sensitivity, I'm going Jesus, right? We have a movement in the soul of the church right now which is very, very good. Just like you see a movement in the Leidenites, which are going to become the pilgrims, in that same time period where they're like, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to do the hard thing. I'm ready to join the Virginia Charter. I'm ready to go across the Atlantic. You do know how hard that is, right? Yes, I do. I do recognize it may cost me my life. There's a first cut that is taking place here, and it is separating out the men from the boys. It really is. And there are, there are guys that don't want to go on this journey. 
and there's others that are like, sign me up. They're the first cut. It's pretty, pretty incredible to make the first cut, right? But it's the second cut that I want to focus on today. Surviving the second cut. So I've been going through this when uh, 1492 Columbus sails the ocean blue. He is going to go and discover a new world. And it's going to awaken this age of discovery. And the age of the discovery is going to have twos in it. There is going to be a southward direction, which is where the gold is. And there's going to be an upward direction, which is where the lost souls are. So when people try and recast American history as being conquistadors, they're actually mis mixing it up with the southern story. Oh, the gold diggers all went south. They were after the Aztec and Inca kingdoms. They were the ones that did these genocides and these atrocities. I'm not saying bad things didn't happen up north. However, something extraordinary happened up north. And that is that the, the Spanish called it God-forsaken territory because there was no gold. They saw New Mexico and Arizona. They're like, yeah. And as a result, the missionaries went up. The Franciscans, the Jesuits. We have uh, the encroachment of what we would say the Puritans and the, the Pilgrims in the Virginia territory and Massachusetts. And you're going to see actually a nation that's going to be forged out of a pursuit of Jesus as opposed to a pursuit of gold. So south and north, two motives, gold and God. You're going to see two distinct motives. Now we're going to discover gold in this country and it's going to bring out the bad. It will. But there's a delay in that. It's interesting. And a foundation is already going to be set in our country that is going to sustain us at least up until now. Right now we see the very foundations of our country being challenged. The very things that used to rule in this territory were lawlessness and fear. They're ancient spirits that are very familiar to this territory and they want their land back. And we see it happening right now where there's a lawlessness. I mean, when you defund the police, what exactly is the conclusion that is coming? Does this bring about utopia or does this bring about a lawlessness? If you're a bad guy, you love to hear that. Yeah, let's defund the police. Huh, that gives me more room to maneuver. If you're a bad guy, you love stuff like that. If you're a good guy, you love righteousness and justice. And so what we see is a bad guy mentality beginning to encroach upon our country. Fear was the ancient spirit that ruled here. If you were an Indian tribe and there was another Indian tribe that was stronger than you, like uh, the Iroquois, they were the big guys on the block and they intimidated everyone and they would go on raids just for fun. And their grand delight, their greatest pleasure was the screams of their victims being tortured. Okay, when you live in a place where that is your neighbor, you can understand why fear would be a constant companion. This was this country. This land was ruled by an evil. And that evil was purged out of it and something was established here that was a building ground for the greatest missionary force this world has ever seen. This land is now under duress. We are in a broken down state. Now, I still believe there is hope, but the issue of our country and its longevity actually isn't my focus for us. It would be, we as the church, whether we lose this land, whether our bank accounts are frozen and our buildings closed to us, whether we are thrown into prison, it actually makes no difference to us at one degree, one level. 
We will still be the church. And we will still function as the church because what we've signed up for is not a Sunday morning service. What we've signed up for isn't as long as it is easy, then I will be a Christian. We have signed up for Jesus. And no matter what comes, whether it's sickness or death, whether it's living in plenty or want, it makes no difference what it is. We give ourselves to Jesus no matter the cost. Our motive is God. So I'm going to talk about two cuts, making the second cut. I'm going to summarize it very briefly here. The first cut is, I'm just summarizing his finances and family. When God first separates us out, oftentimes he's going to touch some very deep things in our life, like our finances and our family. Are you willing to give up everything for Jesus? Are you willing to empty your pockets and say, yes, Lord, I'm in? Are you willing to say goodbye to the land you love, to the people you love? I mean, this is classic missions right here. And what's funny is you see that as the first cut. You're like, gulp. <laughs> That's the first cut? That's the first cut. And many of us don't make the first cut. Most of modern Christianity isn't making the first cut. I desire us to make the first cut, but even more than that, I want us to make the second cut. In other words, there is a loss at the very beginning of life. If you want to have capital L life, you have to give up your life as you now know it. So this is where it begins, and I'm calling this the first cut, and it's ironic that people could make the first cut and not make the second, and that's what I want to land on. I just want to bring that out for us to prepare for that, to recognize that we are being built to go the distance, recognizing that there are going to be plenty of reasons why we should stop. We cannot allow reasons of this earth to sway us from the calling of Jesus Christ. The second cut, it's not very attractive, I recognize that on the screen, pain and death. When you are threatened with pain, when you have certain death staring in front of you, many people will shrink back. It's interesting because I wanted to shrink back from walking out onto a stage and looking the fool. So how much does God need to work in us to boldly go into that territory where we recognize, yeah, even if it is a cross. And so that's what I want to touch on, that issue of the second cut. Peter Marshall, historian. Now, I'm jumping into a story here, and we are at the point where the pilgrims are desirous to leave, but now they need to figure out how to leave. And finances is the biggest issue. And so Thomas Weston is actually going to be the financier for this. He is going to negotiate a deal with them. They are going to be indentured for seven years in this new land. And there are certain requirements for it. Overall, it's a fair deal, but Thomas Weston has sort of an ace up his sleeve, and he is playing upon the gullibility of the pilgrims. I, there'd be, it'd be a fascinating movie just to do it on Thomas Weston because he sees their purity and he knows their work ethic. I mean, he's a smart guy, and if you were going to have someone to bet on, I would bet on these guys, the pilgrims. I bet they'll come through. I mean, this is a hardy sort, but he is, he's playing that, and so he agrees to fund you know, the, uh, the two ships to go over, and they need to invest in. Each one of them is having to put in around $1,000, which would be our equivalent of $1,000 now. 
And for them, remember, they're living hand to mouth, working 15-hour days. This is, this is a huge sacrifice to make this work. And so they're investing it. They're getting a share in this, uh, this company. And so at, right at the juncture where they have said goodbye, they've had all these tears, and they get on the boat. With everything finally readied for departure, Thomas Weston chose that precise moment to present a revised contract that effectively doubled their season of indenture from seven to 14 years. Could you imagine you're on the boat, you've said goodbye to everyone, the amount of labor it took to get to this point, the amount of emotional expenditure, that's why he chose this moment. He's like, you just need to sign here. He knew they wouldn't like it, but he also played them for fools. He fully expected them to object, but because they had said all their farewells and committed all their funds to the endeavor, they would simply have to sign. He had them figured out. The proving of the first cut pilgrims, part one. Okay, so you're part of the, I mean, there's going to be one third of the pilgrims that are going to be going over. Okay, so that means there's two thirds that are staying home. One third is going to go over. Sounds a little Gideon-like, doesn't it? Yeah. It's interesting how similar this is to Gideon. Okay. One third is going to be on this boat ready, and then they're going to get this. And I'm going to call this the, the proving of the first cut pilgrims part one. So these guys are first cutters. They've made it through the first cut. I mean, I'm impressed with them. I'm impressed. I mean, they have somehow come up with the money. They have negotiated this whole adventure. And they are now saying, we're going. We're leaving for a place where 50% of us will die in the first year statistically. Ah, that's a big uh, movement of soul. That, that's a big step. One that most people, by the way, 66% of those that are dead serious about Christianity didn't even make that uh, step. They're like, we have to do this. God is leading us to do this. Let's go. Now, this first group is going to go over and establish something so the other two-thirds can come. So it's not that the other two-thirds don't want to come. They just aren't first cutters yet. I mean, they, this is a hard decision, guys. You have to admit, this would be really difficult. If we could just get ourselves into their boots, uh, we, could, we could feel it. So they are going to deny Thomas Weston. Thomas Weston basically sort of holds the jugular, right, with his grip. And he's going to march out disgusted with the pilgrims. How could they do this? And he's angry at them. These guys don't get ruffled. The pilgrims are a very unique sort. They have been trained from a young age to guard their emotions, which could sometimes make them feel more like boring characters like Jedi than anything. But they, they, are, they will rejoice and give thanks in all things. So in this situation, they just pray. And they have enough. They need to, I think it's like, I don't remember what it was. It was a significant amount of money. I don't know, it was like 6,000 pounds uh, of sterling. But they're going to sell thousands of pounds of butter, uh, and they're just going to sell it. So it says the thousands of pounds of butter must go. And you're like, well, we didn't need that anyways. Well, you see, they have to take over enough food, not just for the voyage over, but for the entire settling in season before they ever get a crop. This thousands of pounds of butter is their only surplus. So they have everything measured out, exactly the amount that they need. They're gonna take their surplus and sell it to be able to pay off the final debt to be able to get these two ships going. Okay, so that's hard. That's a big loss. Now you have no surplus for this journey, right? So you still in? 
I, I know all of you first cutters, you're like, that, what, that's not good. I don't like that as a starting uh, issue. But, you know, hey, we're still going, all right? Let, let's go. Let's go! The proving of the first cut programs part two. They go three days out into the Atlantic and they realize that the Speedwell, so they have the Mayflower and the Speedwell. They realize that the Speedwell is in trouble. The seams of the boat seem to pull apart when under full sail. So when the full sail comes up, there seems to be some kind of crack and they're taking in water. Well, that's not good. And so they're three days into this journey and so they turn back to England. Oh, I mean, it's, you know, emotionally difficult this whole thing has been to start with, right? And we got played by Thomas Weston, yet we sold our surplus. Now we're three days, three days is a long way. That means three days back too. So you have six days of being on the ocean and you've gotten nowhere and what have you done? You've had to eat supplies. And then you have to wait a week for them to examine the boat. They have to take it out, out of the water and they have to examine it uh, and fix it. So they have to recalk it. Oh, so they need to turn back and get it fixed. Uh, guys, we're not done yet. The proving of the first cut pilgrims part three. Again, after waiting a week to fix the problem, they venture forth again, only to realize that it wasn't fixed properly. This time, the seam leak, the seams leak amidst a strong gale, which is just under hurricane winds, okay? Uh, and extreme seasickness accompanies the turnaround back to England. So now, they've gone out, I don't know if it was another three days, actually, we don't have that record of how many days it was out, but we, let's say three, and then they have to come back. So now it's like almost another week but this time it's in extreme weather and they are all seasick. They're not used to this. So you can imagine the emotional state that these first cut pilgrims are in after going through everything they've gone through up to this point. They're seasick, they're weak, they have eaten about two weeks excess of their, of their supply, not their surplus, they've already sold off their, their surplus and now they're back in England. And they examined the whole boat and for a long time, I mean, they're going to take candlelight and go along every single seam many times over. They cannot find an open seam. So they're going to determine that the sea well is unfit to float. Oh, no. So the proving of the first cut pilgrims part four. When they cannot find the broken seam in the speed well, they decide it is not seaworthy. This means everyone must cram into the Mayflower. So I, I don't know where you guys are at in this story right now and how you're doing, uh, but I think my story of walking out on the stage suddenly seems very small. <laughs> in other words, we're dealing with an issue that is going to cause many, and it actually is going to, to say, I'm not going. And they're going to leave the venture. They have to take all their supplies and all of the people and stick them into one boat. This is not a good idea on, on one level. And guess how much food they've already eaten. They've been sitting around doing nothing, eating this food that they have saved up for the whole trip is planned out to the day to be able to transition in and hopefully establish something. Settle. That is very difficult to do in this new world. And if you guys know the story, they're going to end up more north in the new world than even south, which is even harder this means everyone must cram, cram into the Mayflower. Oh, is there still another one? You've got to be kidding. The proving of the first cut pilgrims part five. 
with every passing day that they spend on land solving these problems, loading, unloading, and loading up yet again, they are consuming their precious storehouse of food set to sustain them when they arrive in the new world. So if you're mathematical, how are you doing right now? If you're one of the guys, it's like, um, so there's 50% odds that we're going to survive one year to start with. Now, we don't even have enough food to just even be normal uh, mathematically with when we get there. William Stoughton said, God sifted a whole nation that he might send choice grain into this wilderness. That's his quote. He's going to be a judge in the uh, forthcoming years uh, in Massachusetts. And he recognizes how this nation was founded. And he's going to say, God is going to sift through these pilgrims, these first cut pilgrims. He's going to sift them. And he is going to pick the choicest wheat to bring over here because he wants to do something in this nation. God sees this, we don't. Most of us as first cut pilgrims, if we could even call ourselves that, I mean, even to be a first cut pilgrim is a pretty uh, lofty statement, right? But to be a second cut pilgrim, to make that second cut, I mean, I'm, I'm reading this and I'm wobbly need. I'm uncomfortable. Of course, I even know where they're going, right? So I, maybe I know too much, but they have no idea. I mean, they're headed into a savage wilderness. That is the description of it, by the way, even still at this time. Now, Jamestown has not caused the English to be popular in the eyes of the uh, natives there. And so as a result, there's a hostility that is latent in and amongst the Indian tribes. But at least the pilgrims know when they can arrive in Jamestown and there's going to be infrastructure there to help them. So even if you're reasoning from a pilgrim's vantage point right now, you're, I mean, it's, it's shaky, uh, the ground that you're on, but you know that there will at least be people there that could possibly bring aid, right? But this is a hard place, and a good percentage of them are going to back out. William Bradford and his... Uh, biography on this. Like Gideon's army, this small number was divided as if the Lord by this work of his providence thought these few were still too many for the great work he had to do. Robert Cushman, who I almost just did this as a study of Robert Cushman. Robert Cushman is going to be one of the key guys who's going to negotiate the deal uh, to even get the boats. He's one of the leaders of the pilgrims. And yet, mm, you probably don't know his name because he didn't go. He was on the boat this whole time, going back and forth, back and forth, and he finally couldn't take it, and he didn't make the second cut. This is what he wrote to one of his friends, and so we actually have this documentation of what Robert Cushman wrote in response to trying to say, here's why I stayed back. For besides the imminent dangers of this voyage, which are not less than deadly, our victuals, our food, will be half eaten up I think, before we go from the coast of England, and if our voyage lasts long, we shall not have a month's victuals when come to the country. Friend, if ever we make a plantation, he's speaking for the pilgrims, like if we, as pilgrims, ever make a plantation, God works a miracle. Uh-huh. Isn't that the point, though? That God will diminish down Gideon's army to the point where the only way you can explain it is that God worked a miracle. You see, this second cut is that one point where God's saying, are you in still? 
Do you trust me that my ways are higher? But God, it would take a miracle. Mm -hmm, and I'm the God of miracles. See, God is looking for a people who will trust him to be the God of miracles that will not shy away because of the human difficulty that we may face, but we set ourselves in his hands to actually prove through human weakness that he is greater. Surviving the second cut. So Judges 7-2, I'm gonna just blitz through this. I've, I've taught on Gideon's army many times. I'm gonna have a slightly different angle on it this time. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Uh, there's multiple hundreds of thousands of Midianites and there's 32,000 Israelites. And there's too many? There's too many? There's too many. I mean, God knows what he's talking about. This is the word of God. It's truth. There's too many. Lest Israel say, look what we did. There's different points in our life where we can claim that we accomplished something. But God loves to bring us across that proving of that second cut to the point where the only way to explain what has taken place in your life is that God did it. God worked the miracle. Judges 7.3 is just the next verse. Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people saying, whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. So basically two thirds are going to stay home. How many of us are afraid? Well, I mean in a day like this where fear is actually hip, it's actually hip to be fearful. That is a strange world in which we live in right now. If you are not afraid of a virus right now, then you're part of the problem. Isn't that just strange? I know we've discussed that before and just brought that out, but that's a strange world in which we live. And so as a result, I can understand that a big percentage are not gonna make even the first cut if we're talking about fearlessness being the first issue on the table. So do you fear the Midianites? There's multiple hundreds of thousands of them out there and you're wondering, do I fear them? There's only 32,000 of us. Yes, I fear them. Go home. You're not even making the first cut. This first cut is rather amazing. That's what I'm saying. To be a first cutter is, is a pretty uh, amazing thing to aspire to. I don't want to be fearful, but there's something even more that God is going to desire in his men. Judges 7, 4, but the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water and I will test them for you there. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And of whomever I say to you, this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. Don't you just feel like that's exactly, bring it down to the water. Let's test it in the boats right here. Robert Cushman, are you in? I'm out. God's separating out the chaff. He wants a pure strain to go with them. This, this story is profound. We, we have a tendency to focus on the settlement side of uh, the pilgrims, but it's the decision-making side that most stands out to me. It's the processing that they have to go through because I'm, I'm concerned for my family as I'm in this situation to choose to take my family into a situation that is this dire, and after all of this stuff where the food has already been eaten up, our surplus is gone, we have no excess, and we still have to cross the Atlantic, by the way, all crammed into one boat. 
I mean, I, there's not that many of us. If I said, I'm going to have a sign-up sheet in the back uh, for this grand voyage to the new world, I think we could come up with a lot of reasons why living in Holland and working 15-hour days is not that bad. And yet there's going to be this group that is going to pass the second cut and continue. So we have a second cut taking place here. Then the Lord said to Gideon, by the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. 32,000 down to 300. What was the distinction? That second cut, there were those that went onto their knees, seemed to plant their face into the water, and there are those that cupped and brought their hand to the mouth. The difference seems to be one of readiness, if I could say it very simply. Those that plant their face into the water are not circumspect of the enemy and they lose sight of where they're at. Those that cup are able to maintain a visual uh, understanding of the horizon and they're able to maintain a readiness. A readiness, maintaining a readiness. You see, when you put your face into the water, Robert Cushman is gonna stick his face in the water. I can't do this. This is too much for me. You guys ever felt that? Yeah, okay, this is the language of humanity. What can I handle? That is too much, remember this line? I didn't sign up for this. Are you sure about that? You see, as Christians, I don't know if you read the small print, it's actually the entire Bible, but it's small, there's some small, edition, small print editions. It's the Bible and it says that he's asking for our life, our health, our resources, Unless a man come to that cross and give up his life, he actually doesn't even enter into this compact, this agreement. He doesn't get on the ship in the first place. I mean, this is how it's all starting. We're giving up our life and we're entering in, but we didn't sign up for this. I mean, this is, this is getting too difficult. We can't just go three days out and then three days back. We haven't accomplished anything. What's God doing? He's winnowing. He's preparing his people. You get, it's, it's hard for me to see so many people turning away from Christ right now in our generation. I'm not a fan of it, okay? And it seems to be a problem. At the same time, this is what has to happen at a certain level. When it gets difficult and when the social pressures become so much, it is going to force the issue for the Robert Cushmans to actually say, I'm not on this ship anymore. And to be honest, you don't want the Robert Cushmans coming with you. I mean, that's just to be honest. If you're going into your underground church, you really don't want a Robert Cushman who's going to say, I've had enough of this, and then expose the, uh, the, the entire whereabouts of what's going on. And when he's tortured, he's like, yes, let me give you the names and their phone numbers. In other words, what you want are men and women that have made the second cut. So how do you make the second cut? That's all we want. That's what I crave. That's what I desire. I desire to go the distance with Jesus. I see my hesitations. I want, you know, for a subtle excuse of like, I don't have any dress clothes tonight. Can I get out? Can I get out and still maintain my dignity, right? Can I still maintain good relationship? Can you guys still think highly of me and I can still get out? Classic. This is what we want. We don't want to be thrust into that scene of difficulty, of travail. We want Christianity and we want the serious version, but we don't 
want to have to go three days out, three days back, three days out, three days back, all cram into one ship, go all the way across the Atlantic, seasick, dying. I mean, it's miserable. If you study that trip across, it is so depressing. <laughs> that trip is so hard. And yet they are going to be, though they be ground like wheat, they are going to bring forth such a picture for the, this entire nation. They're going to make a decision on that boat even before they get off. It's called the Mayflower Compact that's going to set the pattern for representative government in this country. This little band of second cutters is going to be used by God so mightily that we still have a holiday in America that remembers and celebrates this. That's extraordinary. Hebrews 10, 35 through 39. Do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. Robert Cushman, do not cast away your confidence. Your confidence has great reward. Remember that confidence that you had, like God's gonna sustain me. God will provide. God's grace will be sufficient in all things. Remember that confidence that you had? You see, it's very easy to have that diminish when you've gone three days out, three days back, three days out, three days back. You've been eating up your victuals. Don't you love that word, victuals? And now you have to cram into the Mayflower. And what's God's word say to Robert Cushman? Robert, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. If you will maintain your confidence right now, God will reward it. For you have need of endurance, Robert, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, if anyone shrinks back, is another translation, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are, of those, we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Isn't it interesting to see that contrast, that believing is, is countered in contrast with drawing back, which means believing means to Move forward. Believing in that, in that exact illustration is not shrinking back when the difficulties come in, but actually plowing forward and saying, I know that God has called us to this. Let's go. Let's go. So that function of soul, which it, I'm not going to say I've learned it to the PhD level. I, I may be at the kindergarten level with it, but it is a function of soul that has been very, very significant in my forward steps. Because I, like you, do not like difficulty. I would choose comfort and ease if you gave it to my natural man to choose. However, I cannot allow my natural man to choose. And that's the key. I need to know what God wants. If he wants me to go north instead of south, he doesn't want Guyana, he wants the north, which is my exact life. That's why that message stood out to me. That's my life. Eric, I want you to go north. Yes, Lord. I'm going north. And I'm no longer going to consider south. I'm not gonna look at south. I'm not gonna be like Lot's wife and look back. I know that God is saving me. He's directing me somewhere. And I do not want to look back at Guyana and say, but what if... I know where God has called me, and I'm going that direction. However, as you move forward in these directions, there are layers of difficulty that begin to come out 
that are actually somewhat surprising, if I could say it that way. I mean, we read scripture, but it still surprises our soul that we actually run into these winds and these storms. And that all of our well-laid plans, because many of us will only go forward if on paper our business plan works. And Jesus says to the disciples, feed them. Have them sit down and feed them. Give them some food. But what, <laughs> we don't have any food. So they go look around. They found a few loaves and fishes. I mean, this is ridiculous. God will do the ridiculous if we do what he says. He says, feed them. I can't feed them. Robert Cushman says, we can't feed them. We can't make this work. He reasons his way into an abandonment of the project. As opposed to, do not let go of that confidence that you have. Many of you know right now, sitting in that seat, that God is faithful and true. The key is remembering that he is faithful and true when you have gone back and forth twice to the English coastline. They cannot find a seam in the boat, and they want you now to cram onto the Mayflower. And your mind has the devil whispering to it, you didn't sign up for this. And then Robert Cushman says, I didn't sign up for this. When I signed up for this, it didn't include this, 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 and this. What we as Christians understand is, yes, it does. It does include this, 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 and this. It includes whatever God knows is necessary to separate out wheat from chaff. God has an agenda, and we need to allow him to fulfill it. So, when you get to that moment, let me go back to my, uh, my awkward week that I just had. Eric, would you be willing to join a panel? You know that here's one thing I've learned. Okay, don't ask too many questions. Don't try and figure everything out before you say yes. One of the things I said before when I, I told Philip uh, Telfer when I was coming down there is, whatever you need, my answer is yes. Okay, I'll just be a servant to you the entire time. So, pre-decided yes. Would you help with a panel? Yes. Now, what's the panel on? <laughs> we don't know. All right. I still feel it. Still have the awkwardness. But yes is the answer. Forward step, right in front of the other. And what does it lead to? Yeah. Some awkwardness, some difficulty. And then, will you help with the emceeing team? Yes. The thing that I have learned in this is to not question the forward movement of the Spirit of God and just to keep going and to not look back like Lot's wife, to not spend my time wishing my life were easier, but to cherish where God has me to know that the grace of God is sufficient for this next test. I wonder, I really do, this is, this is a great question to say, am I a William Bradford or a Robert Cushman? Only the second test will, will prove that. And you could say, Eric, have you gone through the second test? I don't know if I have. I think I may still be a first cutter. I think I may be a first cutter that esteems the second cut, passing the second cut, and I esteem it with a huge amount of esteem. But that doesn't mean I've actually been tested at that level. And so that's where I want to bring this up to all of us to say, let's start practicing and exercising the resilience and not throwing out our confidence when we face smaller trials. Because that's what prepares us to stare at being crammed into the Mayflower with all those remaining, how stinky 
and messy that's going to be and to say, yes, Lord. And to not ask questions, to not stare back, to not watch Robert Cushman go off with his huff and his muttering under his breath and say, but maybe Robert has something that we need to consider. God has led us this far. He will lead us onward. We are being proven. God desires to build a people that is ready to make the second cut. Father, we are naturally cowards. We are naturally those that stick their face into the water and consider ourselves and our own appetites first. But Lord, may we keep our eyes on the horizon. May we remain ready to say yes and to move forward. Lord, we do not want to be like those that shrink back and to doubt. To doubt your ability, to, about, to doubt your provision, to, devout, to, de, to doubt your power. Lord Jesus, we want to be those that believe. And Lord, I pray that we would exercise our souls today to say yes to the difficult things. That we would not shy away from difficulty now in our daily life so that when the greater difficulties come, we would be prepared and readied to say yes, to keep going, to pull a William Bradford instead of a Robert Cushman. Lord, we need you to be able to do this. It's in the precious name that we ask this, amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.